1: Glad that you're all here. Let's uh, open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we have to study tonight. We're grateful for the Word of God that uh, teaches us many things. We thank you for the way it brings clarity and not confusion. We pray that that would happen tonight, that we would have a sense, a uh, clearer sense of what you've said to us. Oh, Lord, you've not spoken amiss. You couldn't have spoken any better to us. Lord, if there's anything we don't understand, it's because we are in error, because we don't know the Scriptures of the power of God. So I pray that you would help us, uh, Lord, to know the Scriptures and the power of God a little bit better as a result of our time tonight. Send forth, therefore, your Spirit and enable us uh, to understand all the things we're going to discuss tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So last night, uh, my family and I watched Left Behind. Um, I hadn't seen it yet. This is the movie with Kirk Cameron. I was tempted um, to begin with a little clip from that movie to give you a, a sense of what they thought the, um, the secret rapture uh, would look like, um, but I decided not to go in that direction. Um, but you can get that uh, movie and look at it. Um, for many people, that is the next big event in, uh, eschatological, in the eschatological timetable, um, the uh, rapture of the church. So we're going to start with that tonight. And you all have a handout. Uh, the rapture is a uh, biblical doctrine, and uh, we're going to talk about it tonight. Uh, any Bible-believing Christian uh, must believe in the rapture. Uh, we're going to talk about that and what it is. Uh, but the key passage in all the Bible is 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18. So let's look at that as we start. Uh, beginning at verse 13, it says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, my understanding of what was going on in the Thessalonian church is that some false teaching had come there, saying that the day of the Lord had already come and that they had missed it. And also there was an element of false teaching in that uh, Christians who died were lost forever. So you can imagine, rather than it being a a celebration of a uh, homecoming or uh, of a life well-lived, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness, all that confidence that should attend a Christian funeral. Rather, it'd be a time of great mourning, sadness and loss, eternal loss even. Well, that's just false teaching. And so he's writing here in 1 Thessalonians 4 um, to say that you didn't miss it uh and that the dead in Christ are not going to miss it. They're really at no disadvantage. Uh there's no disadvantage whatsoever at the second coming of Christ uh, to have uh having died. Uh, but actually, frankly, they're going to precede, he says. The dead in Christ will rise first, and after that, uh, we'll be caught up with them, etc. So there's no disadvantage He's saying that. And he's going to make it clear in 2 Thessalonians 2 that they didn't miss it because the day of the Lord cannot come until the man of lawlessness or the man of sin appears. So he's dealing with these end-time uh, teachings, and how depressing would that be to miss the day of the Lord, to miss the second coming of Christ, to miss it all, um, And so he's desiring to uh, write to encourage them. He ends up in verse 18. Encourage each other with these words. That's what he um, says. So we should actually take this uh, very seriously. Uh, We should take end time teaching. We should take uh, the teaching of the rapture here, for example, and uh, other uh, things that we're learning, and we should use it to encourage one another. A life is difficult. A battle with sin is difficult. The work of the gospel is difficult. Uh, We're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil every day. And uh, the remedy that God has given us to the satanic discouragement that uh, he's uh, constantly trying to foist on us... Uh, is the Word of God, that we should be uh, taking the promises of God and we should be taking the future teaching and all that and just using it to encourage each other. So we should do that. But here's this teaching on the rapture, and as I said, it is without question, without controversy, the clearest passage on the rapture that you'll find. There are some other passages, but they're not so clear, and it is frankly debatable whether they're actually talking about what Paul's discussing here. Uh, We'll get to those in due time. The word rapture uh, is found uh, in the Latin translation of verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. The Latin verb is rapio, uh, together with them in the clouds. So it's the catching up into the clouds. What a, what a picture that is, to actually meet the Lord in the air. So if you have, as you should... Uh, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, or approach to Scripture, you're going to take it as it's written and try to understand it and apply it in that way, then we are going to be in mid-air when the Lord comes to meet us. And that's uh, quite exciting for those of you that always wanted to fly. Um, you know, for myself, I know that's something I uh, yearn for. And, uh, I just finished re- reading a book on Orville and Wilbur Wright, and I just thought, boy, that's so exciting. But, you know, a tremendous danger in flying uh, those gliders, And uh, they were constantly facing their own uh, death, etc. There's no danger in this one. The Lord's sovereign power will keep us from any danger. We will meet the Lord in the air. That's what it means. So it's a sense of being caught up. I think another passage uh, which is relevant here... Uh, Speaks of God sending, or Christ sending out his angels and gathering the elect. And so there's perhaps a sense that angels will be involved in catching us up with uh, the Lord rather than perhaps that we'd be given directly at that point the same power Jesus had when he ascended into heaven, the power to defy gravity and to meet the Lord in the air. That might be. He could just take us up with uh, him by his own power, but it could also be that he'll send out angels to do that. I don't know. That's a detail. But this is a biblical doctrine. The church will most certainly be caught up from the earth to meet the Lord in the air. This is the other passage I was referring to, Matthew 24, 30 and 31. At that time, it says, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, verse 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather as elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now you notice that there's no catching up there, and therefore perhaps debatable whether that passage, Matthew 24, is in fact referring to the rapture. Uh, That's open to debate. May I say to you, everything in here is open to debate. My head has been spinning. I've been reading these books, and I'll continue to read it's not my my lot in, in life here and my uh, ministry to present confusion to you and to make it worse for you having come. I want to pre- uh, present clarity, and so I'll tell you where I think something's just my opinion and where something's very plainly taught in the text. Uh, but I do believe, uh, it's my conviction, that Matthew 24 is speaking of the rapture as well. Uh, I want to say to you it's not necessary at all to believe in what I call the secret rapture. Um, it's not necessary to believe in that, and... Uh, and to believe in the rapture. In other words, I don't know what else you can do with 1 Thessalonians 4 other than say that we're going to be caught up in the clouds and meet the Lord. And so you can believe that without believing the scenario, for example, that Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins put in their book. Um, and so uh, what is that? The picture in that movie uh, is of uh, everyday life going on as it always has. And then suddenly, inexplicably to those that are left behind, uh, people disappear. Nobody really knows those that are left behind where they've gone, although some may know uh, those that were taught accurately but never really believed uh, may have a good idea what happened. Uh, They were left behind because they didn't genuinely believe in Christ. But uh, worldwide, there's no really clear understanding of why all of these people disappeared. Now, uh, they go into, uh, details using, I think, their imagination, uh, in, in, that there are clothes and rings and necklaces and other things left behind giving evidence of where they were at the last moment when they were, uh, when they disappeared. But, you know, there are other things. In the movie Hoosiers, for example, I don't know if you remember that movie about basketball, there's this guy who's driving the church bus and it says in the case of rapture, uh, this seat will be empty, that kind of thing. So there's a sense of, of some, somebody suddenly disappearing and then uh as as the uh scenario goes, you know, whatever happens to those buses or planes or whatever happens, so there could be you know bloodshed, there could be accidents, there could be all kinds of things. So that's the scenario. The reason you know you would call it a secret rapture, it's really not so much the rapture that's secret, perhaps the reason for it is secret to those that are left behind. They don't fully understand it. Uh there's no explanation. But uh the important thing for me, and this is very important, is that the people who are unbelievers do not know that Jesus has returned. That's the key. And, and that's why, for myself, I can't accept this. Um, I think there's a very clear presentation in First Thessalonians 4 that the Lord is coming and everyone knows it. Now, that's the debatable point, and others will have a different view, and if they have the opportunity to teach, they can say what they believe. But for myself, I think that's a, a, a fatal flaw here. And that is that unbelievers don't know Jesus has come. And I don't think that fits 1 Thessalonians 4, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, where do we place the rapture on the prophetic um, timeline? Well... I would not present to you, I do not believe that the order that I'm giving these topics on eschatology is the proper one. In other words, I'm giving you the rapture tonight before the tribulation. That's what, what the issue is, is pre-tribulation rapture. So after I get done with the rapture, then we'll discuss tribulation. Uh, that is a common conception among evangelicals, I would say probably the majority of you pre-tribulation rapture. Um, but there are many uh, solid Bible-believing Christians that would not place it there. Rather, they would place the rapture where I do, at the second coming of Christ at the end of all things. Um, you know, before, if they are millennial, uh, some are millennial. they don't believe that the second coming will lead to a thousand-year physical reign of Christ on earth, but it will lead right into the eternal state. Heaven, hell, new heaven, new earth, everything. There's just a simplicity of that. We'll get to that in due time. But that's what they believe. Um, others uh, uh, could put it... Uh, Uh, linked with the second coming of Christ um, before the millennium, but after the tribulation. So uh, it it just has to do with where you're going to position it in terms of the tribulation. Does it come uh, before this uh, seven-year tribulation, which we'll discuss, God willing, tonight, during which the Antichrist is reigning? Does it come in the middle of that, or does it come at the second coming of Christ? There are various options. Now, the pre-tribulation rapture, um, let me explain it and support it. Uh, The secret rapture, as we've already talked about, things going on, Perhaps in the middle of the night for some time zones, um, uh, maybe in the middle of the day for those on the opposite side of the earth, uh, and it could could come any time, in the middle of of life with no warning at all except that that warning already given in scripture. Um, Those that hold this view would not call it secret at all, they're they're saying this teaching has gone out to the ends of the earth. I mean, People have heard this, we've been preaching and teaching this for, for generations, there's nothing secret about it. Um, and I understand that. And so I don't know that that's the best title for it. What I, I guess why I choose it is that the, the idea that that Christ's coming was secret to those who didn't believe. And that's a key thing, as we'll see. Um, all true believers in Christ will be raptured. Uh, some, like Tim LaHaye and others, extend it to children before the age of, the, of accountability. Everyone not raptured, therefore, are said to be left behind. Those folks are not necessarily going to hell. They're still alive on earth. Uh, but they missed the first opportunity to be with the Lord. Um, uh, They might still repent and become what's known as tribulation saints. Uh, Thus, we cannot imagine that God is against putting some of his elect through the tribulations of the book of Revelation or the reign of Antichrist. In other words, the general mentality is get, get them out before all that comes. All right, this is the church, I will rescue you from the time of trouble that's coming on the earth. We'll talk about that verse, Revelation 3.10, but to get them out and to rescue them so that they don't have to go through that. But the fact of the matter is there's not a single scheme that posits that there will be no believers whatsoever that go through the, the time of the tribulation. Uh, generally, the focus is on Jews um, and the, uh, the 144,000 that are sealed from each of the 12 tribes, etc., Um, Whether we can make that clear distinction between Gentile and Jew is, as all things, debatable. Um, But the fact of the matter is there are some of God's elect, some of those that God loves, his children who are born again, who will go through the time of the Antichrist. Every scheme says that, that believes in that. So the fact is God is in some way going to have to protect and and preserve his saints through the time of the Antichrist in any case. The question is whether they were um, believers at the time of the secret rapture. That's that's the, the issue. And uh, to me, I find that uh, fascinating, the idea that, you know, that's your first chance, and if you miss that one, then there's, in effect, somewhat of a penalty. You then have to go through that time of, of suffering, uh, etc. You had a chance to miss it if you had repented in a timely fashion. You wouldn't have to go through, then, the seven-year uh, tribulation. But in any case, uh, all the schemes that I know of Uh, that try to explain these verses uh, do um, uh, say that some of God's elect, some of God's children will have to go through the time of the Antichrist. Uh, With that having been said, then the argument could be made, then why not all of them? Why not any that are still alive? It's not necessarily that God doesn't love you if you go through the time of the Antichrist, as we'll see. All right, scriptural support advanced by those who hold this view pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, First of all, a very strong point uh, in favor of this view is that it allows uh, the Lord to come any anytime like tonight um, and, and really then it's the next event on the eschatological timetable it, it doesn't because it can't really be positioned anywhere except that it inaugurates the seven years there's nothing that has to happen ahead of time um, it, he, the pre-tribulation rapture would come before the antichrist before the man of lawlessness and the man of sin appears there's no precursor then and so therefore any and every generation needs to be ready for the coming of the Lord at any time um, and I think that's a strength of it uh, because that is a clear application that Christ gives us in the Olivet Discourse. That we need to be ready for his coming at any time. Uh, Matthew 24, through 44 says, Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, uh, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So there's a sense in which uh, the Lord's coming, at least there in Matthew 24, is, is in some way unexpected even uh, by the believers. There's not a direct continuum saying, when you see this you know that the, that the coming of Christ has got to happen right now. Or that if this is the precursor to the coming of Christ, if you haven't seen this yet, then Christ can't come tonight. For example, if we haven't seen the Antichrist yet, then Christ can't come tonight. And if Christ can't come tonight, then why should we be ready for his coming tonight in fulfillment of Matthew 24? So I say that's a strength of the uh, secret uh, rapture uh, position. I think it's helpful for them. There are other passages, um, for example, in Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. The and that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come." So, uh, those that are, are speaking of the pre-tribulation rapture say this is a picture of those that are left behind and those that are taken. One taken, the other left. In other words, left behind. Um, there is another way to interpret that passage, as I'll discuss, but this is a passage that they present. The coming of the lawless one uh, would not occur until something is taken away. A very difficult uh, passage uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7, the pre-tribulation uh, friends uh, say this refers to the rapture of the church. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7 says, And you know what is holding him back, speaking of the Antichrist, uh, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret, secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. I think most interpreters say that the he there is the Holy Spirit. And in effect, the Holy Spirit in some way goes with the church. That's the way they interpret this verse. So the influence of the Spirit in restraining the coming of the lawless one is how they would interpret this verse. In any case, it's not an easy verse to interpret. There is something restraining the secret power of lawlessness. It must be removed before the Antichrist can come. (coughs) Susan. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but there are different interpretations. I say to you, it's not an easy verse. Um, there's something, there's a secret power of lawlessness that's at work now, Paul says, and it's going to continue until the restraining force is taken away. There are a variety of other interpretations. But at any rate, this is one of the verses that is presented by pre-tribulation rapture folks. Uh, the fact that the church will not suffer wrath is another verse that is presented generally. First Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not po- appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Some other verses in uh, uh, Revelation uh, are uh, presented. Uh, Revelation 1 through 3 in the dispensational premillennial view, which is uh, not all premillennialists follow this approach, but many, many do. They would say that Revelation 1 through 3 refers to the present church age, and uh, that Revelation two and three, in particular, the letters to the seven churches, represent seven different or consecutive ages or eras of church history. Um, so I think that the Philadelphia Church, which Revelation three refers, 3,10 refers to, would be the penultimate church age, and then there's the Laodicean Church, which is the final. Church age, an age of, of really apostasy and of unbelief, of being lukewarm toward the things of God and all that. So the scheme is that, that Revelation 2 and 3 represents a, a flow of church history. Um, and uh, the, the problem with that, of course, is that, that the rapture occurs in the sixth of those seven. Um, that's a bit problematic, but, you know, I'm not saying that that intelligent uh, people that are presenting this uh, find that insurmountable. But there it is. Revelation 3.10 says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So the interpretive approach there is that that the hour of trial that's going to come to test those who live on the earth is the tr- great tribulation. And that this is a promise to the church generally, that they will not have to undergo that, that they will be uh, raptured away. So Revelation 3.10 frequently uh, presented as evidence of the um, pre-tribulation rapture. Um, that God God is going to rescue the church from suffering his wrath. Again, that would link back to 1 Thessalonians 5.9. God has not appointed us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. Um, Again, it's debatable whether the wrath that we're not appointed to in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 is the wrath of the great tribulation and the bowls of the judgment of God that he pours out. It could just refer to hell, that God has not has not appointed us to suffer the wrath of hell. At any rate, um, on and on the discussions go. comes a point where you just have to teach and... That point came five minutes before prayer tonight and I was like, all right, there it is. I mean, I'll go with what I've got and, you know, all of you that are interested in talking to me afterwards. I'll stay as long as you'd like. Um, Revelation 4.1 is another uh, verse that's presented frequently for the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, Revelation 4.1 says, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Uh, The next verse says, at once I was in the spirit and so up he goes, that's the apostle John, and he goes in and he sees the vision uh, that follows, the things that take place after this. The hermeneutic is, all right, we've got the church age now, and now I'm going to show you what comes next, the future things, um, and what, what's to take place after this. John's um, um, ascent in the Spirit, then, is a picture, or a symbol of the rapture of the church, um, so they would say. And they generally make a very significant point Uh, at least in that view, is that you don't see the church again until Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. So, in other words, the church is not mentioned again in Revelation 4 through 18, through the end of 18. So there's the rapture of the church. It happens at Revelation uh, 4.1. Now, I would say, as I mentioned, that this uh, pre-tribulation rapture approach is predominant in American evangelicalism. Uh, In some institutions, frankly, it's a a shibboleth. Uh, If you don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, you can't teach at that institution. Um, There are some that that have that view Um, because they they think that it shows a, a hermeneutical approach, a spiritualizing or perhaps even liberalizing approach to the scripture that you don't take prophecy seriously. You don't really believe the things that are being said. You don't believe the Bible, really. And they want people that are going to teach the whole counsel of God. They want people that believe in inerrancy, that they believe that every, every jot and tittle is really from the Lord. And so they want people that will teach all of these things. And they link it um, to the pre-tribulation rapture, among other things. Uh, there are others uh, that I know personally uh, that take a more val- balanced view. They recognize that there are legitimate grounds for disagreement on this point. Uh, and they'll will say this is my view. Um, others have other views. I'm not gonna. You know, it's not a, it's something to draw a line in the sand over. Now, let me discuss what I think are some problems with the pre-tribulation rapture. Major problem is, I think, two second comings of Christ. Um, I think that's very very huge. As a matter of fact, for me, insurmountable. In other words, that there's first a coming of Christ for His church, and then there's a second coming of Christ uh, in judgment on the on the rest of the world. Um, Let me tell you something. There are similar problems with every scheme on every point. Um, Again and again, whether you're talking about resurrection and who's going to be in the millennium, if you believe in a literal millennium, will they have resurrection bodies or not, where do the children come from, all of these things. My goodness, my head is still spinning, but thankfully I don't have to teach on the millennium tonight, so I still have a little more time on that. But there continue to be questions about when the first resurrection happens, who's involved, who's in the second resurrection, Revelation 20 difficult. That's why you're all here tonight. You're hoping I'd solve it all for you. And here I am confessing that I probably won't. But um, at any rate, to me, I think two uh, uh, second comings is difficult. Um, I'll talk more about that uh, in a moment. Hang on a second. Let me see what I do with my outline here. Well, what do you know? Yeah, all right. I'll get to it. All right. Um, all of the verses used to support the uh, pre-tribulation rapture, in my opinion, can be interpreted in context another way uh, uh, responsibly. There are other ways to look at them. Let's take, for example, one taken another left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and another left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill; one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Well, that doesn't say when any of it's going to happen. That could definitely be at the second coming of Christ, when he sends out his angels to gather the elect. And he takes one and leaves another. That could be right there and then when the Lord's coming. And they're just left right in the middle of life as the Lord comes back. That doesn't necessarily teach a pre-tribulation rapture. It just teaches an election, a separation of the wheat and tares, a separation of the good fish from the bad fish. That's just what the Lord does. He knows how to separate things right from the beginning. He separates light from darkness. He knows how to pick one and leave another. And so that doesn't, I don't think in any way, is a definite proof of the pre-tribulation rapture. I wouldn't use that verse uh, there. Second Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7 is a difficult passage for everyone to say that it must necessarily refer to the church being removed so the Antichrist can come. I think pushes it beyond uh, the level of certainty, at least it does for me. Revelation 3.10 seems best to refer to a promise given um, the church of Philadelphia itself in the first century. Uh, in other words, my, my general approach on the, on the letters to the seven churches is that they were literal seven churches that were, uh, at the time uh, that John was writing the book of Revelation, they were going through a variety of different things that they actually were going through that John wrote to, but that each of those uh, seven uh, churches represents ongoing themes that the church is going to have to face as long as there's a church in this world. And so I wouldn't say that it represents seven phases of church history that we're going to go through in consecutive order, but um, seven different kinds of churches that are going to be around forever. Uh, And that there are going to be within each of those churches issues of different types of believers and different types of, of doctrinal and moral problems that churches are going to have to face. And therefore that the church in Philadelphia in particular might be in some special way preserved from some kind of trial that's going to come on all those that dwell in the earth. At that point, it might be a special uh, promise that was made to the church at Philadelphia. Of course, realize uh, for that church at Philadelphia, if this is a promise of the secret rapture, it doesn't do them much good. You know, in other words, you know, when... The Russians come with their tanks and planes and all that 20 centuries from now. I'll keep you from that hour. They're they're not even going to face that. So for me, I I tend to take a hermeneutic on those uh, letters to the churches that they had to be relevant to every generation of the church. They had to be in some way helpful to all of them. That's not to say that there are not specific verses that will have a very powerful, potent, potent, and clear meaning to the final generation that we will not really understand unless we are that final generation. I think that's true as well. Uh, I think that comes out in, in Daniel chapter 11 and 12. There's specific, especially Daniel 12, there's specific counting of days and all that that I don't really have any idea what it means. And I almost get the feeling like the Lord's saying to me what he's saying to Daniel. Seal up the vision. It's not for you anyway unless you are that final, in that final generation. If you live in those times, you will know what the 1,335 days are and you will know what the 1,290 days are. If you don't live in that time, you don't need to know. So therefore, I do believe there are specific things that are meant for the final generation and they need to know that stuff. For us, it's just there and we read it and we say, hmm, what does that mean? Um, But if we're going through it, we will know. Perhaps uh, 666 is going to be very much like that, you know, the mark of the beast. Uh, If it's confusing to you, um, it's probably because you don't need to know right now you just need to know what the Lord says about it and then if you are in that final generation it will become very clear what the mark of the beast is Uh, that's just a hermeneutical approach that I take so therefore I think Revelation 3.10 is a promise of general protection that God's going to give his faithful church as they're doing his work uh, for trials and if we want to apply it to the great tribulation I also want to say that it's a promise that the Lord is in a very uh, powerful and final way going to be protecting his beloved church as they go through it You see, obviously, if I don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then I believe the church will go through the rapture. I mean, through the uh, tribulation. And if they are going to go through the tribulation, they're going to need some protection from the Lord. It's going to be a time of great difficulty. But I say that the Lord's been specializing in that in every generation of the church anyway. He does that very well. Look at uh, what it says. Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept my word um, about patient endurance... I will keep you from, the Greek word is ek, from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays this. John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out, ek, of the world, but that you keep them from, ek, the evil one. It's the same Greek word. So there's different ways to interpret that Greek word and different ways, therefore, to look at the Lord's protection. Uh, for example, uh, there are two different approaches you could take. Either evacuation... Or preservation. Evacuation, you know, is get them out of there. Like a, like a UN airlift. If there's a revolution going on, you just get them out. And that is most certainly a protection from the danger of that uh, uh, civil war or whatever's going on. Or flood or something. And evacuation would be, therefore, protection. But is that the only way the Lord can protect? Uh, Jesus, in John 17:15, at least for this era of church history, has chosen uh, the latter. Namely, that we would be preserved in it protected from the devil while we live here in this world. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you protect them in the midst of it. So therefore, a different scenario might be this, that during the time of the tribulation, we have something like this going on. Isaiah 26:20 20, and 21. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. I mean, that's a valid uh, approach as well, that the Lord has, in effect, a hiding place where he can hide his people and protect them during the time of tribulation. And that's the approach that I would take. Now, uh, one thing I would say about Revelation 4.1, the general approach, and this is why I talked about that shibboleth and all that, Uh, The general approach that pre-trib folks would make is literal wherever possible. They try to be literal where they can. But that somewhat falls apart in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, especially on the journey that that John takes in Revelation 4.1. That's John. He's the revelator. He's the apostle. He is invited to come up and see in heaven. How do we know that that's the church? There's nothing in the text that implies that's the church. If ever there was a spiritualizing example, that's it. Um, He being the symbol of the church being raptured. Um, and so, therefore, you see, I don't really see any of these verses teaching the pre-trib rapture. Each one of them has a different approach or a different understanding. Revelation 4:1, in my opinion, being the easiest—that John was invited to come up and see things that he would then write about, and we have in the book of Revelation. I think that's the clearest. Also, it says in Revelation—sorry, uh, in Matthew 24:31—that uh, the angels are sent for the elect. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, the elect, uh, that implies, at least to me, others might not see it that way, but it implies that at that point, by then, all the elect have come to faith in Christ. The work is finished. It's done. All the elect have believed, so go get them. He's not going to be gathering unbelieving elect unless the angel's going to evangelize them en route. And boy, that's a very compelling gospel presentation at that moment. I mean, with the Lord having come back. But, of course... All the nations will see him, so by then you can't be justified by faith. We're justified by things we cannot see. So it's over by then. When the Lord comes back, that time of faith and grace is over. So by then, the implication then is that the elect have come to faith in Christ by then. It's over. So that really points at that point to the second coming of Christ, which is where I'm going to end up in First Thessalonians 4. Go back and look at that. That's the key passage. I was talking to Tom Gears uh, two weeks ago as we were leaving and about this, this whole topic, and, and he and I agree... Uh, As another scholar said, if you can't find the pre-tribulation rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, you can't find it at all. It's got to be there because that's the rapture text. You've got to find it there. And I, I think what I find there is the second coming of Christ. That's what I find. Look at it again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So that's resurrection, second coming resurrection. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Skip the Matthew passage and just stick with 1 Thessalonians for now. 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17 is the clearest passage in the Bible in the rapture. It seems plainly to be describing the second coming of Christ. The Lord himself is doing what? What is the Lord doing in the verse? What does it say he's doing? He's descending. To where? Well, that's the whole <laughs> debate, isn't it? Uh, pre-tribulation rapture folks would say he's descending to meet the church in midair. All right? But it seems more plain that he's descending to come to the earth. Now, why is he descending to come to the earth? Well, Revelation 19 makes it plain what he's coming to do. He's coming to bring judgment on, I believe, the Antichrist and all his forces of evil. He's coming to bring wrath on them and to establish his kingdom, if you believe in the millennial reign, or to establish the eternal state. Either way, he's coming back. All right, the Lord is descending. He's coming down to earth. Uh, This seems to speak of the return in glory described in Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse. Also notice right in the text, the loud command, the voice of the archangel and trumpet call of God. Now, you would have to posit that these things are all heard only by the believers. But that's not a natural way to read it. It seems rather that this is announced to everybody. Everybody's hearing it. Everybody's seeing it. This is the second coming of Christ. It's a very public, obvious coming, not just to the elect um, that are being gathered in the clouds. Also note that someone is going to have to make a U-turn. There's no getting away from it. Either the Lord makes a U-turn or the uh, ascending saints make a U-turn. Uh, it seems best for us to do it, um, you know, let the Lord finish what he started. And so he's coming and he's going to keep coming. We go up and meet the Lord and then we turn around, if we're still alive and are left, we turn around and come back with him uh, in, in as in my opinion, one of the armies of heaven and ride with him as he finishes his work on earth. I think that's a, a clean and appropriate way to uh, interpret it. Now, Matthew 24, if you look at the second coming, it is very plain that the second coming is open and obvious, and it speaks very strongly, in my opinion, against any kind of secret second coming, which is obviously irrelevant. Matthew 24:26 and following says, So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other." Now, to me, that seems a consistent picture of the second coming of Christ. It's very open. It's very obvious. The angels get sent out to gather the elect. They meet the Lord. The unbelievers know it. They're mourning over it. The end of the world has come. It's judgment day. They've come back. So, to me, I think there's a consistency there. Concerning the tribulation, saints not receiving uh, wrath. I think I already covered that. Um, God consistently puts his people through immense suffering throughout all church history. And quite frankly, Daniel 7 says a little horn will wage war against the saints and defeat them. And when we get to the uh, Antichrist passage, we'll see that this is referring, I think, to him. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. I mean, that's the essence of the tribulation, in my opinion. It's the Antichrist defeating the saints on earth. Certainly not in heaven. They can't take away the heavenly reward, but he can certainly make life miserable on the earth, and he does. So as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Romans 8 and 2 Peter 2 both show God's power protecting saints in the midst of suffering while protecting their souls. Uh, Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, Knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors. By the way, I think uh, John Piper is right in saying the NIV is a little weak on 8.36. It's not we face death. It's actually for your sake we are being killed. That's actually what it says. We're not just facing it. it. People are dying. Christians are dying right now. And that, to me, seems consistent right on through the tribulation. They're going to die then too, only in much greater numbers. All right? As it is written, for your sake we are dying or killed. We're being killed all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, you see that? neither death nor life. Death cannot separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Death will not do that. So we can die and still be loved by God. That's the point. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Second Peter 2 very plainly uh, picks up this theme. If he rescued Lot, this is 2 Peter 2, 7 through 9, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who is distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Now, a pre-tribulation Rapture friend would say, yes, but he got pulled out of Sodom and Gomorrah, rescued out. And that's a good point. But he is there still on earth and he's in a cave waiting it out. Uh, He went to Zoar and then to another place. In other words, a place of refuge was found for him. And I think that, in my view, that is what he's going to do. He's going to find places of refuge for his saints, those that are going to survive, um, those that are still alive and are left when the Lord comes. Uh, he'll find places where they can survive the onslaught from the Antichrist. But many are going to be killed, and they'll just be with the Lord uh, and come down with him. Um, Concerning the church not appearing in Revelation 4, after Revelation 4.1, know, however, that there are saints. Now, they say that these are tribulation saints, but for me, I think this is an artificial distinction. Saints are in the church. <laughs> you know, so if there are saints there, I don't see there's any reason that we shouldn't call it the church. Um, the saint, these are just different verses that show how the saints are going to be attacked in the book of Revelation. But everywhere else in the New Testament, the word saints refers to Christians generally and to the church of Jesus Christ. For example, 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God and, and Corinth together with all the saints throughout Achaia. So there's a clear mingling or mixing of the idea of church and saints. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.33, for God is not a God of disorder but of peace as in all the congregations of the saints. That's just another way of saying in all the churches. Um, and same thing in Ephesians 1, uh, 1. So, finally, an appeal for charitable discussion to happen very soon after I'm done. You all can talk very pleasantly with one another, and especially with me, um, about, uh, any of your views on this particular thing, uh, as it says in Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Uh, this is no good reason to divide fellowship. All right, let's move on and talk about the tribulation and the antichrist, um, I am just woefully behind, you guys know that. I'm, I'm just cooked already because the schedule is printed and you guys see it every single week and I just get further and further behind and it's just a tough thing, but uh, we'll just do the best we can, we'll just keep going. Now, let's talk about the tribulation and uh, we'll just get as far in this as we can, tribulation and the antichrist. First of all, we've already made the point that there's some elements of end time things that are just going to be continuing in the same manner, perhaps in an escalating sense right up until the end. Tribulation is one of them. It's not like the church suffers no tribulation in the world and then suddenly the great tribulation comes. Not at all. Uh, Frankly, Luke 21 uh, speaks about persecution. But uh, before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. Well, that's been characteristic of the church age all the way through. The church has suffered greatly many times, as it says in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way uh, because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And then 2 Timothy 3.12, very plainly, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there's going to be tribulation all along. That is true. Church history is full of suffering. Acts 8.1, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Or in Acts 13.50, uh, the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Or you can just read the list of sufferings of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11. Many, many sufferings that he went through. As Tertullian said very plainly, the blood of martyrs is seed. So as they continued to bleed, uh, more and more Christians came up. And that was during the time of the Roman persecution. Well, it's gone on way beyond that. There are still martyrs going on, uh, martyrs being killed for Christ even now. So that's been going on. Also, as we've said, there have been many antichrists. Uh, Many, many antichrists. 1 John 2.18 says, many antichrists have come this is how we know it is the last hour. So the last hour or the last days are characterized by just kind of a reign of antichrists. And as I've already mentioned, they come in two different flavors, two different types. Let's say there's the political antichrist and there's the doctrinal antichrist. The political antichrist then would be a leader who uses his authority and power to crush the church. Um, He may not care that much about the doctrine, but he cares very much to crush Christians and try to kill them and destroy them. That's an antichrist, a Revelation 13 beast who de- crushes and devours the church with raw political power. And throughout church history, the, the church has had a, for the most part, very uneasy relationship with the prevailing state. Uh, it's different here in our country, and ha- or has been up to this point. We'll see how it goes over the next 20, 50 years, I don't know. But uh, up to this point, it's been generally a positive relationship with the government in America. Uh, but it, most of our brothers and sisters in the world, it's not a favorable relationship with the prevailing government. Some to the point of even just an openly adversarial relationship where they're being arrested and killed by the government. That's one type of antichrist. Then there's the uh, doctrinal kind of antichrist, which John mentions frequently. Uh, 1 John two twenty-two: Who is the liar? It is the man who d- denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So, in other words, a denial of Christ is the spirit of Antichrist. Anyone who gets up and teaches in such a way is teaching from the spirit of the Antichrist. 1 John 4, 2 and 3, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. 2 John 7 says, uh, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. That's a very strong statement. So we tend to talk frequently about the Antichrist, but there have been many all along. So the table is set throughout history for the Great Tribulation. Is there, then, a Great Tribulation? Is there going to be one? Well, this expression is actually found from the mouth of Christ in uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. It says there, beginning of verse 15, "...so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand..." Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not uh, be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now no, no, uh, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So there it is. Right in Jesus' own statement, that expression in this translation, great tribulation. So it's a time of tremendous suffering, distress. You can tell just from Jesus' words. Pray that your flight may not take place in the winter on the Sabbath or that you're not pregnant or nursing. I mean, that sounds horrible. It sounds like you're literally running for your life. And I think that's precisely what... Is going to happen. In my opinion, I think that there's a localized interpretation or application of that, and then uh, a final one. Localized being the fall of Jerusalem. And at the time of the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans, it was a time of great suffering. And in effect, he's warning the church, "Get out of town!" When you see the Romans building bulwarks against the city, it's time to run. Run for your life. But I don't think that that's the end of the story. I think that that. As I've said before, as it was, so it will be. These things just get reenacted again and again. And so there's going to be yet another onslaught against Jerusalem. And so the warning from Christ is still going to be there. When you see these things, run. Run for your life. And that's why I just think there's going to be places of refuge and safety where the believers are going to flee, out to the desert even, or to uh, places where they can escape. At any rate, there is the great tribulation, that phrase that's used by Christ. Christ also implied a time of escalated wickedness earlier in that same chapter. Uh, All these, he says in, in Matthew 24, 8 and following, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. That's the great apostasy. Many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. I don't think that there's anything wrong in seeing that, seeing in that the great tribulation. Although, as you notice, those same kinds of things perhaps could happen at a lower level uh, earlier in church history. But I do think that he's speaking there uh, about the Great Tribulation. Paul also uses language of escalation. Second uh, Timothy 3 says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, stop right there. You already know that we're in the last days. All right? So this has really been true all along. But I think there's a sense that there's, it's just going to get much more wicked at the end. Much more violent, much more coarse. And, and immoral and blasphemous and all that. But look what he says. There'll be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Or, it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. I already mentioned this. That there was there was an unsettling in the Thessalonian church, saying that in effect they'd missed it. They'd missed the day of the Lord. He said, "Don't let, don't be deceived." In verse uh, 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 three, "Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to the, to destruction." So, in other words, you're not going to have the second coming until you have this this um, rebellion or turning away, apostasy, and um, the A man of lawlessness is coming, the man doomed uh, to destruction. So both Christ and Paul speak of a terrible time of wickedness at the end of the world, a time of great suffering and trial, a time of apostasy and rebellion. This is what we call the Great Tribulation. At the center of it is the Antichrist. At the center of it is the reign, the rule, the power of this one who's coming. There is an Antichrist that's coming, and he's described in many places, especially in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll get to that in due time. Uh, The duration of the Great Tribulation... Um, One passage, I think, only gives us a sense of its duration, um, but that may be enough. It's a matter of interpretation, but the duration is generally seen to be seven years. The time frame, I think, is only taught in Daniel. If you were to do a word search on the phrase seven years, you're not going to come up with anything um, in the New Testament, except in Luke 2, speaking of something that had nothing to do with the end of the the world. So um, where are we going to get the seven years? Well, it comes from Daniel. Uh, the Great Tribulation is described in several places noted above, but the time frame of seven years can only be gleaned from Daniel. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, however, a three-and-a-half-year period is referred to not just in Daniel, but also in the book of Revelation. So uh, that is mentioned in a number of places, rather, rather striking number of places, um, corresponding, many believe, to the final stage of the Great Tribulation, the last half of it. All right, Although the, the two witnesses in, in Revelation... Uh, eleven, many believe that they witnessed for three and a half years that's the first half. So three and a half plus three and a half being seven years. So there's a consistency there. Um, but here it is. These are various places that refer to a three and a half year period. Uh, Daniel seven, twenty five says he will speak against the Most High and oppress the saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time times and half a time. You say, well, that doesn't take three and a half years. Well, hey, welcome to prophecy. That's what you have to work with. All right? Um, so what a time, times, and half a time is, most people believe it's three and a half years. And that's only because there's just so many other um, corresponding verses that uh, teach a similar, almost exactly the same period of time. Uh, Daniel 12:7. The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying it will be for a time, times, and half a time when the power of the holy people has been finally broken. All these things will be completed. So again, there's a sense of onslaught against the saints. They are going to suffer greatly. But when their power, it says, has been finally broken, then everything will be complete. In effect, the idea is that the Lord's going to come back and rescue his church, finally. Not with the secret rapture, but with his second coming. He's going to destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. That's how he's going to rescue them. But it's uh, after a time, times and half a time, three and a half years. But again, the interpretation is at the second half of the seven-year period. Uh, Revelation 11, I've already referred to. These are the two witnesses. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar, count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. It will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Well, that's three and a half years again. All right, so you have um, three times 12 plus a half, so that's three and a half years, 42 months. Um, and then it says, I'll give power to my two witnesses and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days. Same thing again. Uh, there you go with the 30-day month, so-called prophetic month, and you end up with the same length of time, three and a half years. So the idea there, the interpretation on Revelation 11, is that the two witnesses uh, prophesy for the first half of the seven-year tribulation. For three and a half years, they witness, they prophesy, and then they, um, they are killed by the beast. The Antichrist kills them. Um, and they lie uh, for three and a half days The Lord just loves numbers. Isn't that interesting? So for three and a half days, they lie in the streets of the great city where the Lord was crucified, and then the Lord speaks to them, and they are resurrected, and they're called up to heaven. So that's quite a spectacular moment there in the book of Revelation. But uh, the idea then is if you put the two halves together, you get a seven-year period. So I said it's only really taught in one verse, but uh, these other kind of three-and-a-half-year things, if you put them together, you end up with the same thing seven years. And again, Revelation 12:6, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And again, speaking of the Antichrist, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. So there's a sense, and again the interpretation there is that he is really bearing down during the last three and a half years. There's a sense in which, you know, he begins at the, at the start of the seven year period, but he doesn't really show his true colors and his, his raw power until the second half. So he's given power then to reign for the same length of time. There's an amazing consistency here, three and a half years. Uh, more mysteriously, I've already mentioned this, I just thought I'd throw it, throw it in here and you guys can do what you want with it. Um, but it's in Daniel chapter 12. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Hmm. So another 30 extra days there. Um, and then it says, even more mysteriously, blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. No explanation given. And then, but you, Daniel, you're going to die, and then I'll rise, raise you up to your eternal reward. And then the book of Daniel ends. That's it. So if you want to tell me what the thirteen hundred and thirty five and 35 days is, let me know. But my approach on Daniel is that basically I would be told, and so would you, the same thing Daniel was told when he asked, something he didn't need to know. Don't worry about it, Daniel. It's not for you anyway. All right? Now, we don't know it's not for us. All I'm saying is I just think there's some things in the Bible that people who go through it will understand exactly what the thirteen hundred and thirty five and 35 days are. They'll be counting them in a cave somewhere. And thank God that there's not 1,336. That's about the sense you get. If those days had not been shortened, Jesus said, no one would survive. So Jesus has measured out those days and he's coming at exactly the right time to do what he needs to do. That's the sense. And it's, it's, it's a very sobering thing. And one thing I get from consistently studying this is that the Lord wants us to know these things. You may be confused, I may be confused, we may not be able to put the whole thing together, but there's some big themes that start to emerge here. Do you get it? Persecution, danger, antichrist, be ready. I mean, these are things that the Lord wants us to know. And these are things he wants you to teach your children. He wants your children and your children's children not to receive the mark of the beast, for example. He wants you to know. He says, see, I've told you ahead of time. He wants you ready. And so he has you study these things. It's very, it's very important. Um, so we have this, uh, the three and a half, three and a half, et cetera. But the key passage, finally get to it is uh, in Daniel 9:24 through 27, which is the 70 weeks. An astonishingly deep prophecy with levels that will escape our full treatment here, especially with only one and a half minutes left. All right, but let me go ahead and read it. Um, Daniel 9:24 and following. Seventy sevens, or weeks, are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Amazing revelation given to Daniel. By an angel. Uh, The context here, 70 weeks, literally 77s. But I think most commentators, in my opinion, rightly take it as blocks of seven years. So 70 times seven years, 490 years total. Uh, That's what we're looking at here. Um, Now, context. Daniel has been seeking the Lord in prayer. Having understood from the book of Jeremiah that the desolation of Jerusalem will last 70 years, he sets his face toward praying. He prays in a brokenhearted, humbled way. Pleading the glory of God and God's zeal for His own name and His own His concern for His own reputation, not any merit of His own, not any merit of the people uh, the, who are sinning. Still, he says, in spite of all this, we continue to violate your laws, etc. He knows that they have no standing. But really, what he's doing is, is that one Puritan uh, said, "Show God his writing. He's fond of looking at it. Okay, don't don't plead your own <laughs> righteousness. Show him what he's promised to do, and that will motivate him." And so that's, in effect, what what Daniel's doing. He's saying, Lord, you promised that you would restore. And I want to know if you will do it. He's pouring out his heart. He's praying fervently. And the Lord sends an angel to answer him because he is highly esteemed. Isn't that incredible? What an end to a prayer time that is. And look at the topics that are covered. The focus is on Daniel's people, the Jews, and the holy city, what they actually say, his holy city, which is Jerusalem. Um, seventy-sevens or weeks of years are decreed, it gives a time frame. Look at the six goals of the whole thing. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. I just see the cross of Christ and His work there. Don't you? I mean, we as Christians just say that's what Jesus came to do. He came to deal with sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. The prophecies point to Christ. This is about Christ, I believe. And so I think, as a Christian, I look at this and say this is about Christ's first and second coming. And, and what an incredible, then, span that's taken in here. Uh, the first coming of Christ, in which it's clearly prophesied that He, will, he the Messiah, will be cut off and will have nothing. And so, you know how the Jews struggled with the dead Messiah. You know what I'm saying? They just couldn't imagine that that their Messiah would be dead on a Roman cross. That was unfathomable to them. But Daniel was told ahead of time that the Messiah would be cut off and would have nothing. In other words, he would appear that his mission had failed. But it hadn't. This was predicted. So this is, I think, prediction of the coming of Christ. Now, interestingly, the time span for that is seven weeks and 62 weeks. So you just interpret that and say, okay, I know my arithmetic. All right, that's 69 weeks. Okay, seven plus 62. Why it's given in that way, I do not know. All right, you can ask Jesus when you see him. If you meant to say 69 weeks, why didn't you just say 69 weeks? He has a reason for everything. I don't know why. Maybe something happened after 49 years and then something happened after whatever... That is minus 49. haven't done the math. But um, he uh, chose to give us the 69 weeks. But it does leave you wondering what happened to the 70th week, doesn't it? And so the idea then is that 70th or final week refers to the second coming of Christ. It refers to the end of the world. So the Messiah is cut off and he has nothing. Then war comes in. The city is destroyed. I think this refers at least in part to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans after the death of Christ. Um, so in they come, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end will come like a flood, war will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Now, suddenly, in verse 27, we get this mysterious person, this he. It, the word Antichrist doesn't appear here, but who else could it be? Look what it says He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, one seven, one period, I think, of seven years. In the middle of that seven, and there's the middle, three and a half years in. In the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice an offering, and offering, w- and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This uh, one seven is interpreted as the period of the Great Tribulation, seven years. The first half of the span, apparently a period of relative peace, and then in the middle of it, in the middle of the seven, comes the abomination of desolation on the wing of the temple. The final destruction of him, of this individual, Whoever it is, I believe the Antichrist is decreed and it will be then poured out on him. And that's all we have time for tonight. So, um, we're right in the middle of it. Um, we're going to see next time the Antichrist, who he is, what he comes to do, how he's described in the book of, of Daniel especially and in Second Thessalonians. We're going to talk about his characteristics and his career, what he goes through. We're going to talk about the temple of God. What a mystery that is. To me, it's a mystery. If you really imbibe, take in... I mean, just really swallow the message of the book of Hebrews. That animal sacrifice is finished forever. There's never again going to be a need for blood sacrifice. It would be an insult to Christ. Then where does this temple come from? That's a big question. So we're going to talk about that God willing next time and about the uh, final uh, wrath of God in Revelation. These are the characteristics of the time of the tribulation. So you've got the Antichrist, you've got the temple... Um, And what happens with the temple? You've got the Jews and what's going on with the Jews. And you've got the wrath of God, the bowls, uh, the the seals, seven seals, the seven uh, trumpets and the seven bowls described in the book of Revelation. So that's all next time. Do you think I can do it? I don't. Uh, No way. There's no way I'll get through that. But uh, at any rate, um, these are the things that we studied tonight. Let's close in prayer and then I'll stay here as long as you'd like to answer questions. Father, we thank you for this uh, time that we've had tonight uh, to study. And, Father, I pray that you would open our minds to understand the truth. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Help us to put these things together, O oh Lord, as best we can. And, Lord, help us to be humble and recognize we don't have all the answers. That these prophecies are very deep. That it's hard to fit them together. But we know this. You are coming again. There's no doubt about it. And when you come, you will bring your reward with you. And that it's important for us to be ready at every, any and every moment. You can come tonight. And we will not be able to quote Bible verses and say such and such didn't happen and you said in Second Thessalonians, etc. Lord, you can come whenever you want and we need to be ready. And if it's in fact that you come tonight in the, in the secret rapture, Lord, we will be there by, by faith in Christ and you will do what you choose to do. Lord, we uh, humble ourselves before you and acknowledge the depth of your word. But Lord, do help us to understand it as best we can, to understand your prophecies and predictions to be humble with one another. But above all things, O Lord, help us to be personally holy so that we're not ashamed when you come back. And help us to be about the business that you've given us to do, namely to seek and to save the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org.